0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, a Air Force combat controller, super excited For this story, if you guys have heard us tell stories about uh, Air Force PJs, Power Rescue, and jumpers, this is kind of like. Right in that same ilk, so super excited for that. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. Just a reminder about leaving us some Apple reviews. Uh, we were doing some research this week, find we're getting reviews from all over the world, folks. So keep them coming. They're great. They're fantastic. We certainly appreciate them, and it's helping us grow this podcast and try to crack the top one hundred Apple podcasts. So not only tell a friend, but leave a review wherever you get your Apple podcast. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show, and if you're lucky, only if you're lucky, we'll post it here on our social media accounts uh, where you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard. at Hazard Ground Podcast. Keep up with the show and everything we have going on. Of course, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You can go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the sponsors tab. You get to do all of your normal Amazon shopping. We get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage back to some of the charities and organizations featured here on the Hazard Ground. Also works from your smartphone. Very simple. Directs you right to the app, so that way all your credit card information is saved. And as a matter of fact, I'll Pull the curtains back. I had to yell at my wife. She did Christmas shopping already on Amazon and did not go to hazardground.com. It was a big source of consternation in the Zeno family. So she's going to get a mouthful. But please, as you get ready for Amazon shopping, holiday shopping, go to hazardground.com first. All right, on to this week's guest, who has spent 24 years in the United States Air Force as a combat controller. He's deployed all over the world, including Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Bosnia, Angola, including four combat jumps one in iraq three in afghanistan which is a rare rare accomplishment in the soft community he retired as a chief master sergeant and is currently the president of the board of both the cca the combat controller association and the combat controller foundation he is michael la joining us here on the hazard ground michael welcome and thank you so much for joining us
1: Well, no, thank you for having me today it's a pleasure to be here
0: Uh, also interesting to note, um, you actually had the pleasure of serving with and being a personal friend of the late master sergeant, John Chapman, who's the combat controller who was killed, uh, in Afghanistan, posthumously awarded the medal of honor, uh, during Roberts Ridge, AKA Taker Gar, a story that we've told several times here on the podcast. So just sort of another connection, uh, between the podcast and and your service altogether.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. I, uh, you know, John and I were on team together, uh, when he unfortunately passed, um, And then I've got a great relationship with his family. And then Dan Schilling and and Laurie uh, Chapman, who wrote the book, uh, there's a real close connection there as well. So uh, John's always an interesting uh, subject to discuss because he's such a hero.
0: Yeah. And Dan, uh, part of the uh, Black Hawk Down mission in Mogadishu, uh, which a story we've had like 12 or 15 people and we've never even had to have Dan. So maybe you could tell Dan to, uh, to jump on the hazard ground with us. We'd love to hear his story as well. But uh, we always like to start yeah. with our guests uh, with their story and your story back at the beginning. 24 years in the Air Force. Where and why did and how did it start?
1: Yeah, it was interesting. I, uh, you know, I joined the Air Force. as really a way to get away and, and go be myself, right? I, I always felt like I had something to do. And uh, as I was growing up, people in the military just had this thing about them that I, that I admired. So I went, man, I got to go do something. And uh, while I was in basic training, I heard about combat control. And, uh, you know, I just went and tried out. I quite frankly didn't think I'd have much of a shot at it, uh, but I passed the test. Uh, an interesting anecdote is that the night before class started, they had us all in a room. The instructors were talking about what we can expect. And, um, you know, they, they said, hey, out of a 100 of you that are sitting here, five of you are going to make it. And the lead instructor looked around the room and he goes, La Monica, you're not one of them. And that kind of made me a, a a person that people didn't want to be around. That's uh, A lot of people avoided me. But the really interesting thing about that story are a handful of guys did come up to me and talk to me after that. And to a man, everybody who came up and said, don't worry about that. Let's move out. We're a team. Those are the guys who graduated. Uh, we graduated 15 guys out of that class, and uh, they're all still very good friends today.
0: That's awesome. What year was this when you enlisted?
1: 1987. Wow. So I joined August 12th, 1987, and you know, went to basic training. And then uh, this time that year is when I was going through the, the in-doc course there on Lackland Air Force Base.
0: I mean, how did you hear about it? Um, Because, again, the the soft community, the special operations community, especially back then, it wasn't as common knowledge as it is now. Like I've always remarked. I remember when I was on active duty um, and I was on Fort Hood and I was driving down the road, I remember seeing a banner about special operations. And, hey, if you're interested, you know, uh, call this number kind of deal. And I always wondered what it was. And I never knew what it was. And, of course, this is in a pre-9-11 world. Um, so how did you end up finding out about it? Because I feel like more people might have joined or at least tried to join if we had known about it earlier.
1: Yeah, no, no doubt. So, you know, back then we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. Uh, communication moved at the speed of paper back then. <laughs> um, when I was leaving for basic training, my my uh, recruiter handed me a, an airman magazine. It's the published every month. And uh, on the front, it had a guy doing exercises and, and it was titled Superman University. It's about pararescue. And he said, Hey, you may want to look at this. And on the ride to the MEP station, I was looking at it. I went, Well, not really something that interests me. Um it, it really talked about doing a thousand push ups before nine o'clock in the morning, things like that. And I <laughs> I just wasn't that guy. I was more interested in joining the military and just going doing a job. Um uh, while I was in basic training, um, I found a lot of people weren't really prepared for what they came in for. They it was just big emotional trauma for them. And I'd been preparing for the military mentally my whole life. Um so for me it wasn't quite as bad. Uh, and I, I went to a briefing about combat control, pararescue, on like the second week while I was there. And while I was there, there were there were candidates, pararescue, combat control candidates there. And I went, these are the guys I want to be around. I couldn't have told you what a combat controller did at that point. I just these are the guys I want to be around. So I went and took the test. And I passed, uh, and then everything went on from there. So I really heard about it by recruiting in basic training. Um, we, we've since come light years ahead.
0: Yeah. What was it about them? Was it the look? Just the the way they trained, what did you, what were you seeing that sort of was the impetus
1: for it? So they were guys who did what they said. They moved with a purpose, and they were there to be there. They weren't there because they wanted to go to college. They weren't there because they were running away from something. They were there because they wanted to be there, and the mission was what was important to them. Uh, and that proved out throughout my entire career. Just when you surround yourself with people that are focused, uh, they elevate you. And uh, I can attribute many successes in my life to being around those
0: folks. Isn't it? Isn't it crazy how in an organization like the military where everybody is meant to dress the same, look the same, walk the same, talk the same, you could just look at certain people in that uniform and know they're different. You know, they just have that confidence, they exude that sort of whole personality that comes out of them. And yes, the unit itself lends to that, but just in general, you didn't really have conversations with these guys, right? You just saw them?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, well... They, they were the students who were briefing us and, and giving us the physical assessment. Right. Um, so they, uh, we were very much interacting with them and they, they just moved with a different uh, purpose. It, it was, it was striking to me. As a matter of fact, when I talked earlier about when I was growing up, people who'd served carried themselves differently. These guys carry themselves like those people that, that I knew, uh, and foremost in that is my grandfather. My grandfather served in World War II. Uh, he was a medic, uh, on the front lines there and you know he engaged the enemy many times and he was shot uh two times um and just growing up he, he was a guy i admired and, and these guys fit that mold uh once i got into the pipeline i started learning about combat control going, okay this is cool i'm going to jump on airplanes i'm going to scuba dive and, and all these other things but it really um you know most of the people in the military will tell you it's the person to the lefty and the person to the righty and it gives your purpose and for me that was it from day one
0: so after uh, you finish your basic training, how quickly do you get to start going through I, – I, was it back then? Was it still called like assessment? Is that, is that the deal for Air Force combat controllers?
1: Yeah. No, they didn't. So right at that time, I joined at a very unique time where they, they merged combat control and pararescue to go through the same pipeline. Um, so I showed up. I graduated in the middle of September from basic training. I showed up to the INDOC course and they didn't have a prep course back then but what they did is they had very specific start dates so if you got there early enough you had some gap time Uh, there were guys in my class that got there in july and they had to wait until october for a start i got there in september so i had about four weeks um and they they used that sort of like a prep course at the point because the other students had been there for a while would teach you how to do stuff Uh, but i was lucky because there was a guy in my class who showed up the night prior if i had showed up the night prior i wouldn't have made it to that class i would have gotten rolled back because there was just so much to understand. And, and I wasn't a physical dynamo. I wasn't a big wrestler or a football player. Or any of those things in high school I played baseball but um, I, I needed that extra time. And that's why they built the prep courses for guys like me.
0: I mean, it's just, it, it sounds incredible that, you know, you, you have, you recognized all this so early on that this is what you wanted to do and where it was. And, um, it, it's crazy because, there's a lot of people who don't know if they have the chops to get through a course like that. Right. Like, I mean, a lot of, a lot of guys who enter it think that they do, but clearly with the attrition rate, their body tells them no, their mind tells them no. Um, was there something for you that was like a sole source of motivation in getting through this course?
1: Well, it's, I think every young man wants to prove himself in, in a certain way. And for me, that, that was definitely a motivator. Um, my, my roommate at the time, his name's Dean Thompson, he also retired as a chief. Uh, he and I spent most of our careers together. Um, on the first night of class, after they made the comment about me, you know, most likely not making it, we just looked at each other and said, I'll quit when you quit. So it was making it day by day. And for me, it, I woke up, so we would get up at four in the morning, we would clean the barracks, we would go, we had to run everywhere we went, we would go eat and we'd come back and then we would do calisthenics and we would run to the pool and then we'd come back and do a little bit of academics. Um, and there were things throughout the day that you were doing and it was all physical. It was like going through a, uh, a combine, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, I moved event to event. I literally would go, okay, I made it through this event. Just make it through the next event. Don't quit. You'll be fine. Um, there was a point during the day where the cadre would leave us alone. It was like a, a 30 minute time period. And, uh, it's funny. I, I would sit there in my chair cause you we weren't allowed to do anything. I'd sit in my chair and I'd like, I'd doze off and I'd wake up you know, because it'd be uh, shocking. Like, Oh my God, I'm still here. And uh, I've got this next thing to go to. And it's almost like this adrenaline rush of, of fear because um, you, you're surviving every day. Uh, I don't know anybody who made it through that course, that end that course that went, eh, it wasn't too bad. It was just a <laughs> tough course. A hundred guys start 15 guys graduate and they are running you through the gauntlet physically every day, all day. It's all you do.
0: Yeah. I, um, I asked this a lot of seals. Um, was there a lot? Was there a part of the course where, or a portion of the course where you could see a guy was about to quit, or you were surprised by somebody who quit, or you know, you yourself thought you weren't going to make it?
1: Um, well, every day for me, I just didn't know if I was going to make it to the next day. What, what I knew is I wasn't going to quit. Like it was going to take a lot to make me quit. They were going to have to drag me out of that pool dead. Um, but. Um, you could see it in somebody's eyes. Um, and, and there were a couple of times where guys that I thought were just, they were steel, right? They were hardcore. Yeah. That the next day they weren't there. And you wouldn't always see somebody quit. Like I know in, in the SEAL community, you'll hear about people ringing the bell. Um, we had a fair amount of that where guys would quit, you know, openly. But we also had a fair amount of guys who, um, when there was a moment to be about themselves, they would walk up to the Cadre hallway, they'd quit. We just wouldn't see them. Uh, in the first couple of weeks, it was just, uh, it was, it's truly an attrition event. The first couple of weeks, really, when you lose most of them, the biggest surprise to us is we were down to 16 and we had one of our teammates. He was actually a pararescue, uh, trainee. Um, he quit in the middle of the day and we were all standing outside, getting ready to go somewhere. we were all going, Hey, where's, where's every Houston, where's every Houston. And the cadre looked out and said, you guys need to press on without him. And that, that was a bit crushing because we were a really tight team at that point. Um, and I never got to talk to him to understand why he quit, but uh, he did. It's, he was the last person on our team that quit.
0: I was going to ask you: Did you ever get a chance to ask him why? I mean, that's a uh, nobody ever tracked him down and figured out.
1: Well, one of the guys. So he came in on the buddy system. One of hit uh, one of the guys on our team, uh, they were like best friends. They grew up together. Uh, they were both Eagle Scouts together, as a matter of fact. Um, but we never like once a guy was gone, you never heard from him. It was you, you were fairly isolated at that point. Uh, and then we did have. One guy get kicked out afterwards. So he graduated the course, and this guy was a beast. He was a nationally ranked runner. Physically, he was unstoppable. Um, But he had some discipline issues, and and the cadre were like, hey, yeah, you can be a physical beast, but you also have to be smart and you also have to be disciplined. And this guy just continually in the face of instructors would break rules, uh, and they eliminated him too. So uh, while we graduated 15, only 14 of us made it through the pipeline.
0: Crazy. All right. So after graduation, uh, what's next for you? Where are you going?
1: Yeah. So back then I went straight to jump school. We graduated in December. I went to jump school. Um, and then from there we went to air traffic control school. I then went to survival school, came back from that. Then we all went to the combat divers qualification course down in Key West. That's run by the special forces. Um, then we went to water survival, which was a a really simple three-day course, but it was a lot of fun. Uh, then I went to combat control school, um, and so as you look at the difficulties in the pipeline back then, the indoc course was the big washout. That's where you lost most of your people. Mm-hmm. The next hardest school was the combat divers course down in Key West. And then the combat control school. All three of those were really kind of the pinnacle of fitness there.
0: I mean, it's what is it, about two years worth of school straight through?
1: It is. It's uh, If you make it – so uh, what I didn't have at that point, I didn't get uh, to go to military pre-fall school until a little bit later – um, but right now the course is if if you go back to back and you don't wash out of anything or, or wash back out of any, anything, it's two years, 24 months. It's, it's an incredible pipeline.
0: That's incredible. Um, so when it's all said and done, like, what are you thinking and feeling? Are, are you at a point where um, I'm glad I'm done with school or what's next? I mean,
1: <laughs> yeah, so it's um, the pipeline is a marathon of sprints. What I mean by that is you show up to a school and you're a dirtbag, right? And you got to go through the evolution of proving yourself at that school, that the instructors know you're serious and you can be there and all those things. And it gets a little bit easier as you go through each school. Then you go to your next one and it starts all over again. Uh, and each school um, likes to pride themselves in how difficult they are. Some are more difficult than others, right? Jump school, not so much difficult. Water survival, not too difficult. Air traffic control school, intellectually, is a difficult school. They have a high washout rate there. Uh, and then the, the fitness schools, the, uh, in combat control school and, and, uh, CDQC, those are just tough courses. Um, and even just a bad day can set you back. So, um, when you graduate, um, you know, they, they, they give you command of blast boots and Don Beret, uh, man, it's quite a, an incredible moment. You, you get to go, all right, I did it. I'm there now. Um, then you show up at your unit and they remind you, yeah, you, you know, just enough to be, be here. Um. So attach yourself to a good NCO and go learn how to do your job.
0: Uh, just curious about the air traffic controller school, because I think when a lot of our civilians listening to it, and even military people who don't know what the hell that is and what that does, like, could you go in the tower at the airport and direct traffic? Is that is that similar to what you're doing?
1: That's exactly it. So oh, the, okay. the, um, the historical job of a combat controller is that. So when, when you talk about the different people in special operations, right, uh, the Rangers are are elite light infantry. Uh, special forces, they are, uh, foreign internal defense, strategic reconnaissance, things like that. SEALs are maritime interdiction. They also have strategic reconnaissance. So do the, uh, the recon guys or, or Marsaw. Um, for combat control, when we get to where we're going, our job is rooted in air traffic control. Uh, so we do long haul communications to keep people informed what we're doing. And we're talking to airplanes and integrating them into what we're doing. So, um, you know, in the early days of Afghanistan, what we did for the country was we landed airplanes where airplanes aren't supposed to land. And that allowed us to put forces in on the ground in an asymmetric fashion. And, uh, you know, we had people coming in from north and south, and we basically did a pincer move on Afghanistan. And we made them believe we had more people than we did because we were able to be all over the battlefield at any given time. Uh, and then the other thing that we do that people are very well aware of is talking to airplanes and dropping bombs on bad guys. Uh, but that's all rooted in our air traffic control background. Wow.
0: See, things and things I didn't know that I thought I was supposed to know. Uh, So after you finish all the schooling, what's your first duty assignment?
1: So I was out in Washington State, McCourt Air Force Base. It was a great assignment for me. And up there we had a scuba team, a military freefall team and a special warfare team, which was really uh, mountain warfare and things like that. And that's the team I was on. Uh, And and I loved it. It was was a great place to be. you I know, was a young guy. I was able to be surrounded by a lot of really good NCOs and learn a lot from them. Um, so it was a great two-year assignment. And while I was there, I got to go to the Gulf War, and um, we were attached to the third. I was on a small three-man team attached to the 3rd Armored Division, and our job was to do resupply, land airplanes, uh, where airplanes aren't supposed to be, and uh, drop bombs if necessary.
0: So that experience, when you get to go to the Gulf War, um, because it was, like, over so quickly, are you – did you feel like you at that point in time you had actually experienced combat?
1: I, I didn't. So, uh, you know, I, I'll refer back to the people I looked up to as a kid. They were all World War II, Korean War, Vietnam era guys. Uh, and when I came back, they, you know, there is now a bond because we'd all been to war. And, and my response to them was, yeah, I, I haven't earned it yet. You, you, you guys went and fought wars. I was on a camping trip. Um, <laughs> I don't want to minimize it. It was dangerous, right? But when you're with the 3rd Armored Division, and the third armor division is rolling through crushing stuff. You're not in a whole lot of danger. Um, There was danger there, but it wasn't like my grandfather uh, in world war II in the, in the mountains of Italy. It was different, different war.
0: Were you ever, I mean, I remember as a kid, I was young. I was, you know, barely a teenager when the Gulf war kicked off. Um, but I just remember thinking at that point in time, like, wow, our military kicks ass. Like we are, we are just the best fighting force in the world. Um, Did you realize that at that point in time, how much more advanced we were than people we were fighting?
1: It was a bit eye-opening. What I think, um, when when I look back on it, the the competitive advantage we had there was, uh, you know, we had the moral high ground on on the globe. Everybody was behind us. But more importantly, I thought our leaders and, you know, uh, former uh, Chairman of Georgia Steph Colton Powell, who just passed this week, uh, they set us up for success. It was very clear what we were going there to do. They had a coalition behind us. They were very methodical in how they were taking the in information and making decisions. And then when they decided, we went and did. There wasn't a whole lot of ambiguity. So for me, um, those were eye-opening things at the national level. I went, wow, this is how it's supposed to work. Uh, because, again, I look back on Vietnam, and uh, while we did a lot of good things tactically in Vietnam, it was a bit of a shit show because yeah. our national leaders didn't do it so well.
0: No, that's an excellent point. Um all right. So after the Gulf War, I mean, in the big picture, you're settling in for the, about the next decade before anything has to go anywhere. Now, obviously, in the special operations community you are all over the globe doing things that not many people go about but or know about, rather. But so what is your experience over the next couple of years? Are you back at, at, at McCord Air Force Base? Where are you heading next?
1: Yeah. So from there, I, I came home from the war and I, I'd already had when I deployed to the Gulf War, I had orders to go to Germany, um, which is really cool. So I came back, went straight to Germany. And uh, while I was there is again, really cool because nobody can respond to the theater in question like the people who are in theater, right? You have this Joint Special Operations Command and they've got this global mission and they go everywhere and do all kinds of cool stuff. They still can't respond to what's going on in Europe and Africa as best as the people that are there. Um, and I was on a small team, we were in a detachment, there was probably 14 of us. Um, so we're really close, uh, you're in a foreign country and that causes you to be even a little, a little more close. And while I was there, I got to do some really neat things that otherwise might not have been able to do. I, um, like what I flew airdrop missions. I flew airdrop missions over Bosnia. And the reason I was on that plane is we understood how to use the, the oxygen stuff. And they had reporters on the plane as stuff was going out. So I was there really kind of escort them, but, uh, it gave me insight to what was going on into Bosnia. Um, I got recalled one night at like two in the morning and within eight hours, I was on a plane to Somalia. Uh, And it was well before the Black Hawk Down, so I don't want to tie it to Black Hawk Down, but it led into Black Hawk Down. I inserted with a five-man combat control team and 40 UN Pakistanis into Mogadishu Airport. Uh, And we landed, and it was just us. And there was, you know, Pakistani force wasn't that impressive. uh, There were 13-year-olds pointing guns at us. There were people running around on what they called technical vehicles with 50 cows on them. Um, We were almost a joke that the danger to us was, was unbelievable. Uh, but I got to run that airfield for uh, an entire week. And every night we would go and stage off of the USS Tarawa and then come back in the morning and run it uh, humanitarian relief. Uh, that's a really cool mission to get to do. You're helping people in the country. And ironically, that, that 40-man Pakistani force, uh, after we left, the other ones who got ambushed, which then led into the Black Hawk Down event. Right. Um, I went back from that after 30 days there, and immediately got rolled into a, a mission in Angola where they were having the first democratic elections. Uh, in like 30 years, and we were down there to work on airfield to facilitate all that. So really neat uh, ability to respond to things in Africa and go do stuff that uh, is very unique to combat control.
0: Just out of curiosity, did you get a sense in getting into Mogadishu before it all happened that there was any chance that the events that went down would have went down? Did you get a sense of anything like that brewing in the mist?
1: Yeah. So while we were there, it it was – uh, again, I would, I would say it's high risk. And the more I look back on it, it's more risky than we thought it was. Right. Uh, five combat controllers sitting on an airfield with no security. I mean, it was really just us. We didn't have gunships overhead. We had helicopters that could respond up the Tarawa if we needed them, but they weren't spun up, right. They were just there. Um, and, and every day, you know, the, the, uh, locals, they would take shots across the airfield. So I wouldn't say they were directly shooting at any individual, uh, but we'd hear the crack come by us. Um, they were letting us know their presence. So when we left and, you know, a month later, the Pakistanis got ambushed, it wasn't a big surprise. Um, I was surprised we didn't get into more of that.
0: All right. So uh, all this is going on through the 90s. I don't want to fast forward too much, but obviously 9-11 comes. You're where and, and kind of what's your mission, which what's your assignment at this point in time?
1: Yeah. So from Germany, I went to the JSOC company. I mean, that's the, the tier one unit there. I spent four years there. And I went to be an instructor. My last day as an instructor was 9-11. Oh, wow. We were actually uh, we were getting a warning order or a, an op order from the students. They were getting ready to go into the field. And while that was going on, my lead instructor came in and said, hey, I need to put this on TV. So he interrupted the briefing. He put it on. We watched what happened. Uh, and that was a game changer. Um, the next day, I showed back up, and we immediately started going into mission planning to go over to uh, Afghanistan. Uh, within 15 days, we were on our way there. Um, so really impressive or an impressionable time for all of us, right? It's uh, we just watched the towers go down. There was a lot of emotion. Somebody attacked us. Most of us could have pointed to Afghanistan on a map, but now that was all of a sudden our focus. Um, so yeah, it's uh that that's what happened after 9-11 and in October uh, of, of 2001, we, we were in country, uh, and our first mission was October 19th. So 20 years ago, two days ago, um, when we parachuted into objective rhino to take over that, that piece of real estate. Wow. 20 years.
0: Um, pause on your personal career, but 20 years later, just kind of thoughts on how everything ended.
1: (laughs) Um, can I say shit show? Yes, you Uh, can. It's a national, it's a national embarrassment. It's, um, uh, I don't like getting into a blame game, but we, we made at the national level, we made some very bad decisions and we put people at risk. Um, not just our own people, we lost you know twelve uh, marines and a, and a sailor, which is tragic. Lots of people who partnered with us for decades, people who risked their lives to support us for decades in that country were assassinated. Um, that burden falls on our national leaders no Nobody can defend that to me
0: no that's fair I don't think there's anything that there is much to disagree with there um, you know you you mentioned a moment ago reference to Vietnam, you know, operational and tactical successes versus strategic failures. And, you know, 20 years in Afghanistan is, is the prime example of all that. Um, you could argue we probably should have learned some better lessons, but different discussion for a different day. Um, so you're in Afghanistan. A- at the very beginning, with all the skills that you have as a Air Force combat controller, was, was the the uh, traffic controller one that came in the most in the beginning of the war in Afghanistan?
1: Well, that's exactly it. It's, uh, you know, so let's, uh, play this out over a career while we got to go do some neat things, going to do our job full force. It always, the plug always got pulled just before you were supposed to go. Uh, and a good example is I was on an airplane spun up in 1994. I think it was July of 1994. I was going to jump into Haiti. Former president Jimmy Carter got involved. They, uh, that mission went away while we were rolling down the runway. Um, So we were used to those types of things happening. You know, we always spin it up for the big thing and very rarely does it happen. Um, so as, as 9-11 was happening, we knew we would go do something. We just didn't know what that would look like. So we planned for a lot of things. And, and the thing that we planned for was, um, you know, the, the initial hit on objective gecko, which was Mullah Omar's place that had to happen, um, to get the people there, there had to be a stopping point on the way or actually on the way back to get fuel. Um, so we parachuted into Objective Rhino. We surveyed that in a single period of darkness. It's the first time that had been done since uh, uh, the Iran hostage uh, Objective Eagle Claw. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what we did. It was, it was a really cool mission. The Rangers did you a know, phenomenal job on the ground. The combat controllers and PJs, we went out and we surveyed the geography of the land, landscape. And then we also tested the penetration ability of the ground because when airplanes land, they put a lot of pressure on the ground. And, and that's a unique skill that combat control has. There's nobody else. In U.S. Special Operations Command, that can do what combat controllers do. Um, there's overlap in insertion methods, but when you get on the ground, nobody does what we do. Um, so it's really cool to go do that uh, live, you know, in, in your career. Um, and from there, we then proved the concept that it can be done. And the command then went, "We need to do this more because there's lots of places in southern Afghanistan that we can be penetrating." Um, Right after that mission, I went on a 10-day recce mission where we serviced different landing zones. We surveyed and, and actually landed airplanes at different landing zones. We were bringing in helicopters that would then go out um, and destroy a bunch of shit, come back, rearm, refuel, go back out and destroy more things, come back, pack up, and we'd go home. Um, so that was a really cool uh, opportunity as well.
0: It's insane. Um, did you get a sense when you got there how long you were going to be there for the first time? I mean, in Afghanistan for the first time.
1: No, not, not at all. Um, I will tell you up to that point, special operations had become really comfortable in doing 72 hour to two week missions, right? We go right. do something, come home and, um, we were special. Just ask us. Um, so, you know, when nine eleven happened, we went over, you know, I think our first deployment, we were there for about 60 days. Uh, they brought us home and sent over another team. And then after that started, you know, 90 day to 180 day rotations and, you, you watch that sustain for 20 years. There was no way I believed that that was going to happen. I, um, you know, professionally, I, I didn't see that we were going to go flood Afghanistan with a whole lot of people. I thought we would continue doing low intensity conflict type missions while we we're in Afghanistan. Um, but that that turned into a whole beast that I never believed it would have would have.
0: I mean. I'll I'll ask the question bluntly, um, but were were any of the units you were associated with at that time charged with finding bin Laden, or were you just more about infiltration and staging and positioning things of that nature?
1: Yeah. So the the early days of the war was about um, sending a message, right, going and killing the people who planned. Uh, So that first 60 days, that's what that was about. We very quickly pivoted to going after bin Laden and spent, um, let me see, I was there. So for the next five years, the unit I was in, that was their mission. And a third of our unit was deployed forward, uh, really, all the way up until July 4th of this year. But during my time at that unit, um, for the next five years, a third of our unit was deployed. And the specific mission was to go after UBL and capture or kill it.
0: How much um, prior to, and I guess it's a big picture question, but how much prior to Afghanistan, I know you guys always work in the joint environment, but you never really had a reason to be in a joint environment like you did in Afghanistan. Was that a difficult transition?
1: Um, yeah, so I, I'm not sure if, uh, your statement is completely accurate. That the reason for us to be in the joint environment was to bring to bear our skill sets. Again, nobody right. does what we do. So I've been working with SF and, and SEALs and Rangers for my whole career. And the reason was, is what we did when we got on the ground. You know, the Rangers would go out and they would pull security and kill things. We would run an airfield. Uh, we'd be out with the Army or the Navy. Um, and we would do long haul communications, which a lot of people can do, but we did it because we had the radios that we were also talking airplanes on. So, um, that was the reason, it, and it is validated. We had people all over the, uh, world with, with those teams doing stuff. What Afghanistan was, it was an awakening moment where the country went, we need more of this because once we started getting in Afghanistan and, and really chasing down bad guys, they basically said, if you don't have a combat controller assigned to a team, that team can't leave the wire because of the asymmetric nature of bringing the airplanes to, to bear. Um, so it, it just, our mission exploded. Matter of fact, um, I was a, a team sergeant uh, at that time, and we would have a meeting every other day about, hey, you got a new tasking to send more people, and one person means everything in a small unit. Uh, and we, would, we were playing people Tetris all the time on making sure we could fill all the billets, because every, every day or every other day, we'd get a new tasking for one or two more guys.
0: It's incredible. Um, so, I mean, obviously, the lengths of your deployment, you said, were 90 to 120 days. I mean, are you, for the next 20 years, so to speak, or however long you you, you stayed in, uh, were you 120 days on, 120 days off kind of deal?
1: No, so we, uh, our units um, typically had three, uh, you know, we'll call it platoons for, for the, the audience. We call them flights, but three platoons in them, and one platoon was gone all the time. So you had a, a team gone, a team in workup, and a team in recovery. Right. Um, so that's about how it would work. And and they were, they start off at ninety, and then they went to one hundred and twenty, and then they went to one hundred and eighty, and one hundred and eighty sustained for probably fifteen to twenty years. Uh, it just makes sense to have people there that long because it reduces the amount of turnover, and uh, you get more time in the country, which buys down risk for you. All
0: right. So um, as you as you mentioned before, you're you're deployed with. Uh, uh, Chapman for Roberts Ridge um, and that whole battle of Gar, you know, I, I guess I'm kind of questioning or at least I'm trying to understand um, over the nature of combat from when we get there in 2001 to something that was more, you know, uh, better way to phrase it, just, you know, uh, like, like a notable battle in 2003. I mean, the sustained level of fighting that you're doing is what? Because it seems to after. You know, once you got in the beginning of 2002, things seemed to slow a little bit. No, unless in the special ops community, it was different.
1: Yeah, it, it didn't slow down for us. As a matter of fact, it sped up. So uh, I want to be clear. I wasn't with John when he was right. deployed. John, John and I itself. were on opposite rotations. John went in after I did, uh, and then I came in right after him. As a matter of fact, I, got it. I relieved his position um, a couple months later. Um, so it, it sped up, and the reason it sped up is a, – a, the change of leadership. So we had uh, general Daly, who was in charge of the command at the time. Then general Stan McChrystal came in and he went, yeah, we're, we're doing this different. And we went from doing a couple of missions a week to a couple of missions a night. Um, and it was all about, um, understanding that Al Qaeda had a very flat asymmetric network and they were moving it, and they didn't have to prepare to do things for us. They were just always on the move. We had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to stay in, in, uh, up to their pace. Um, and general McChrystal changed that. It's, uh, his, he changed the planning cycle to, you know, from 72 hours to once you hit the ground, you, you start planning again. And we went from hitting house, uh, a target, um, and then coming back and recovering and assessing what happened to hitting the target and assessing what's going on on the ground and hitting another target right from there. Um, it, he just sped everything up. So that the pace picked up, it didn't slow down for us.
0: Um, yeah, I mean, the scope of this is starting to get just beyond me, at least my comprehension of it. Uh, so when, and again, I'm not focusing necessarily on anything with, with Chapman. I'm just in the big picture, you know, that sort of environment, kinetic environment that you guys in, back and forth. Um, do you actually feel like you're making any progress at all?
1: A uh, couple steps forward, a couple steps back, right? So when yeah. your job is to chop off the head of the snake, And you're, you know, the snake has multiple heads and grows new heads as as quick as you chop them off. Um, The targeting and going, okay, here's where I'm going after you had some very good tactical successes. So once you identified who you had to go get, you would go get him and, you know, either capture, kill him and and that would work. But then the fact that they were backfilling so quickly and it didn't really disrupt their uh, operations at that level, you go, man, um, we're doing a lot of good stuff, but are we disrupting what's going on? Over time, you could see the, the disruption, uh, but in the immediate uh, moment, you, you couldn't. It, uh, it, it did feel a bit well, overwhelming? I would say. Are,
0: are there times where you can think of in battles in Afghanistan where you guys didn't have a decided advantage, or your job was made tougher because of X, Y, or Z?
1: Um, I would say when we actually got into the mission, we always had the advantage. We had. Right. You know, well-trained people, they're professionals who have been doing it for decades. Uh, you had MVGs, you had air power, which always gives you an advantage that nobody else can duplicate. Um, so in that sense, um, no, we, we, we had the advantage where you became at a disadvantage when they said, Hey, we're going to put a small team out here and you got to stand up a, an operating post. Uh, and you got guys living out of a sea land container and your only security is the dirt mound that you built around it. Um, during those times, it gets a bit sporty. So what's it like?
0: I mean, is there a situation where you can think of where you're trying to direct air in support of ground troops because of the terrain in Afghanistan? Like it couldn't happen or you weren't sure? Like, I mean, um, because for you, obviously, at this point, this is your first real foray into combat, as you as you mentioned earlier. And the difference between what you did in Desert Storm and here, is it like night and day?
1: Oh, it absolutely was different. Uh, that different, but we also had technology at the time. We had a really good imagery that we we were able to carry around on computers, right. um, which allowed us to, like, even when you're in a gunfight, it's not like the movies, right? You're, um, aside of maybe Black Hawk Down, where there's a lot of maneuvering and you're in close proximity. When you're in the mountains of Afghanistan, and you're you're having a, a gunfight. There's actually time to to take an assessing. What do we got here? And guys would actually pull up their computers and go, hey, here's what looks like where we are. Here's what looks like they are where they are. And you'd be talking to airplanes and getting their eyes on target. Um, so while it was difficult, um, you had the ability to do your job. Um, there, there were times, and don't get me wrong, um, where, where you were heads down and you were just surviving. Um, I didn't necessarily have that, and it was only days of the war.
0: I'm, so, I'm trying to grasp the toughest part of your job in day-to-day operations because you do so many things. Um, and again, yeah. I know you talk about the air traffic control and being the major part of it, or the, maybe the most important part of it, but I, I'm, I'm trying to put you in the fight in my mind as best I can with my understanding of, of the soft community and, and fit it in there. Is there, is there, am I missing something? Is there a better way to explain it?
1: No, no. Um, so th- there's a couple of things. First off, what's expected of you, um uh, is, the volume of it is, is incredible. It's, yeah, <laughs> you, You're not just going through a door and turn left or right and decide to shoot or not shoot. You're doing that because you're with the team and you have to. Uh, but you have to maintain three-dimensional or four-dimensional awareness really all the time in what's going on. That is very difficult. I will tell you, the the young guys were very impressive because they would be in the back of a, a vehicle. They'd be manning a gun. They'd have a computer here. They'd be talking to airplanes and stacking them up. They'd have three or four stacks, a uh, stack of three or four deep airplanes, talking to them all, while they're listening in one ear to airplanes, they listening in the other ear to ground force commander. Those are all very difficult parts of their job. Uh, here's the most difficult part of being a combat controller, um, in my opinion. A guy graduates combat control school and, and becomes a combat controller after two years of training. He gets to the unit. He's got six months to train up to deploy. Um, and what that means is he's getting his JTAC rating, the ability to drop bombs on targets, He's also doing trained study for the FOB he's going to go to, the forward operating base. And when he gets there, um, he has never trained with that team, whether it's a SEAL team or special forces team or ranger team or a MARSOC team or a coalition force, right? Uh, we had guys out with the British SAS and the Australian SAS and the Dutch. and um, You show up and you're the new guy. Typically, they don't know your name for the first three months. They just call you Air Force. Um, however, you get on the ground and you can be in a firefight within four hours, which the stories of that are numerous. Like guys get on the ground and like, Hey man, there's a vehicle get in. Let's go. Um, so now you're in a firefight and when you're getting pinned down and they want to bring in air, the ground force commander typically says something like this, blow that fucking building up. Now. Um, my guys are getting shot and I'm, I'm losing dudes. Uh, so you have all this pressure on you. Not only do you have to know how to talk to the airplanes and, and communicate what the ground force commander's intent is, you have to understand all the rules of engagement, where you can drop bombs, when you can drop bombs, what type of bombs that plane has on it, how to best employ them. Those are the difficult parts of the job. Uh, doing it while getting shot at and getting yelled at by uh, somebody from another service who probably doesn't even know your name at this point.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you describe it so eloquently. Uh, it, makes, it makes me look like a job that I really want. Not, uh, But that said, it's, a, it's impressive to say the least. Um, and, and I don't think, unless you've been there, I don't think people understand when you say you know, the four dimensions of the battlefield, that's a real thing. Um And most people, that's right. and I, I would tell you most good people in combat have trouble seeing beyond two, because it's just, it, it requires so much of your depth. It requires so much of your brain and your bandwidth that your mind can handle to be able to work in those fashions to be able to do it on, on a fourth level is, is it's above me. I mean, I, I wouldn't even try.
1: Yeah. It, it, uh, like I will tell you, I was an okay combat controller. Uh, our best combat <laughs> controllers can take all that information they're watching the battlefield. They're watching the space. They're listening to two different people talking Their earset or headset and they, they're nailing it like all the time. For me, there were times I just had to sit back and go, okay, I need a second. Let me think. Cause I, I got to figure out how to do my job in this environment. Um, uh, it, it, it's a quite challenging job. Um, and, and, and that scenario I just expressed to you, remember that guy is 20 years old and he's probably an E4, right? So when you show up to a special forces team where, the lowest ranking guy's in E5, right? right? And, and that guy probably got promoted just out of SFQC, and he's, uh, you know, he'll be in E7 in two years. Uh, we send our young guys into very difficult environments, and they're not with their own team. The SF guys train together and go, go to war together. The SEALs train together and go to war together. We send onesies and twosies out with people they never met to go fight a war for seven months or six months at a time. Should that
0: change? Should they give the, the individual more rank when they first start and give a little more training or they're just trained to handle it regardless?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'm not sure rank does much for you. Like it's, I, I sure. I understand that in the debate, but it's, um, I think we do a good job of training and preparing our guys mentally for what they do. Um, and what happens in our pipeline is that, or we always talk about the joint environment. You know, we don't talk about, Hey, you got to go do this thing. We go, you got to do this thing and don't forget who you're with and you got to, They don't understand what you're doing. So you got to make sure they can understand it. You got to be able to do your job because if you go down, you're the only guy and that's what happened with John Chapman. So John was up there with, uh, you know, Britt Slabitsky, who I I know, uh, and and the rest of the guys. I want to say there was about five, five or six of them. Um, when John went down, they lost that advantage. They no longer could bring air power to bear. And and that is a big part of that story. Um, so yeah, it's the the, uniqueness of what combat control does um may not hit the streets or, or people may not digest it really well until they lose it and then when they lose it, they go holy shit um so yeah i hope that helps
0: no it does i, I mean i'm I, it it makes a lot more sense at least in the context of what i know about taker gar and um why, why that's so pivotal uh, you had four um four different uh combat jumps um you said three in afghanistan when did your first one happen
1: so October 19th, 2001 was the first one. Okay. Uh, and and, and I, I use a different term, although they're technically called combat jumps. I, I call them clandestine jumps. It's not like I was shooting my gun while I was coming down or I was getting shot at while I hit the ground like <laughs> the guys in World War II. Right? That, that was a different version sure. of combat jump or even right. grenade them where, where the planes were getting shot at. Um, we went in and our, our job was to be undetected uh, and then do our mission. So I, I offer that. It's, it's a nuance, but it's an important nuance to me. So October 9, 19th, uh, 2001 was the first one. It was Objective Rhino in support of Objective Gecko to make sure that we could take care of uh, Omar. Um, after that, the command said, hey, we need more of this. Um, I went out and did that tactical recce for 10 days, came back, and I walk into the ops center, and my name is on the board for a military freefall jump into Afghanistan. And um, you know anybody who's... Been in this community a while. Goes, hey, those things go away really quickly. So I just put my head down. I didn't talk to anybody. I just started packing my gear because um, I didn't want to. <laughs> what was your first uh, thought? Though, do, do any bad mojo? Holy shit, this is cool. <laughs> um, especially since I just come back from the schoolhouse. Right? right, I'm on a team with guys who've been on the road for the past four years. I come in and all of a sudden I'm on this mission that is the mission of a lifetime. Right. Right. So, but um,
0: clarify real quick. The first combat jump on October 19th in 01, That wasn't a halo jump.
1: No, that was a static line. There was, okay. uh, you know, a couple hundred people there. You don't, you don't do uh, halos with hundreds of people. Right, right. Uh, that, no, that's a rescue for disaster.
0: I didn't know that there were, you know, different types of insertions, I guess, that they that they used you guys for. I thought there was one standard way that you would go in.
1: No. So I, I did that first jump, and I went on that tactical rookie. While I was on that tactical rookie, there were other static line jumps that had gone in to different airfields, and mm-hmm. those were the airfields that we serviced while I was on the ground. Gotcha. Okay. Um and uh, so when I came out, they said, hey, we don't want to relive Mogadishu where we kept doing the same CTPs because uh, that's why they were able to shoot down our helicopter. Um, so we said, OK, this time we're going to do a, a military free fall. And you know, we went up to 10,000 feet. and uh, We didn't believe it was going to happen the whole time. We thought there's no way this jump's going to happen. It's, they're not going to let us do it. How many of you and, are there, uh, four or five? Went, well, there was a handful of uh, rangers from the regimental recon okay. detachment. And then there were... Um, a handful of combat controllers and we had a pararescue with us as well.
0: I mean, this um, is, so I'm excited to hear, 14. I'm excited for you because I knew a couple of green berets who would trying like hell just to go to halo school because it's incredibly yeah. tough to get this school itself, let alone actually have a halo jump into combat.
1: Yeah, no, it was a really cool uh opportunity. Um and, a good anecdotal story is one of my teammates. Um, so when you're doing a halo jump, there's certain checks you do before they open the door to make sure uh, none of your parachutes hanging out. And you know, at the, the ten minute mark, you know they you know, they gave the check and you lean forward and you look at your your teammates' pins to make sure nothing's popped out. And the guy sitting next to me, I said, "Hey man, your parachute popped out." And he looked down. He didn't hear me. He thought it was my parachute. His his response was, "Sucks to be you," because <laughs> what that means is you're not jumping now. Right. They're going to tie you in. Well, once I conveyed to him that it was his shoot, he took all his stuff off, repacked his stuff there in the aircraft and got it back on in time to get up, the, to get out of the airplane. Wow. And it was just an amazing thing to watch. He, uh, the, the guy, he's, he's one of the best operators I ever worked with. Um, and he's just very agile and versatile and he did a great job. But yeah, we, we, um, the ramp came down and I went, Holy crap, this is actually going to happen. And so we got out, it was really dark. So, you know, You can barely see the other guys with their chem lights on their parachutes and um, hit the ground. And uh, in that period of darkness, we were in a place where no planes had ever landed before. And we had to go find our our starting point and create a runway where a runway didn't exist and survey it to make sure it worked. Um, That took most of the night. Before sunrise, we went into a hide site. Um, You know, just like any other mission, you're pulling security half the time while you're there. Um, Then the next evening, darkness came. We set up the airfield with uh, IR lights, landed an airplane, and uh, we handed it off to uh, some of my teammates. They got off the plane and they went out to the mission. We got on the plane and went home. Um, that's the first time that mission had ever been done. Wow!
0: Um, I'm not going to let you gloss over the actual jump itself. Uh, you just said, "Yeah, we the, the the plane opened up and I landed on the ground." Yeah, no shit. Um, I assumed as such, but there's there's a whole lot of uh, emotions and things that go on in between. So from that standpoint, yeah, I mean, one, I just never having skydived before um i i assume it's incredibly hard to land in a very specific spot with all the factors the wind and everything else and how high you are during broad daylight at night i mean are you yeah. wearing nods on this jump like how is like just talk me through while you're falling from yeah. ten thousand feet like everything that you're processing
1: so today they do wear them but back okay. then we weren't allowed like we were allowed to train that way so you don't fight like you don't train so we, we just went hey um, uh, we'd never jump a nod. So, um, you know, you need the plane. I want to say it was nine or 11% illumination. So there wasn't much uh, light out. Um, and you're trying to stay as you're falling next to the guy who went out ahead of you. See, you can see the light. you're just trying to fall with him. I actually had, some of my equipment had uh, shifted and I was in a slight turn. So uh, as I'm, my body's trying to turn right, I'm shifting my body to stop the turn. Um, and that takes, you know, mental energy, so I'm doing okay. you got to make sure I'm staying flat and stable. Uh, then we get to open the altitude. I open my chute. Um, Because you can't really see each other that well, there's just a lot of this. You're hearing parachutes flutter and people coming across you. Then we finally get into a stack. I stacked behind one of my teammates, and we landed a little bit further out than everybody else. Everybody else landed over here. We got on the ground, got our stuff up, and, um, you know, hightailed it over to the team, and they got our stuff together. So it was, <laughs> for me, it was a bit of a sporty jump.
0: I mean, how do you know? I, I assume you have an altimeter, but how do how do you know how close you are to the ground? Is that all you're looking at?
1: Well, um, you are looking at your altimeter, uh, and as training comes into play, right? You've been doing this your whole career, so sure. that comes into play. You also, when you're parachuting, whether it's static line or free fall, um, your your rucksack is tied to a tether, and you at a certain point you let it go when you when you know you're done making turns. Because if you if you let like, go too early, the pendulum kind of messes with your steering but when you know you're on a straight uh, final course you let your parachute or you let your rucksack down it sits at a 15 foot distance from your feet so when you hear that hit that's when you start flaring so that you don't gotcha. snap that's into the okay. ground okay. that makes sense all right
0: yeah, yeah. all these years of experience uh, obviously you talk you talk to through through. so so simply it's just it, it's not uh, it's harder for me to comprehend that um the final two jumps that you did the other one in afghanistan one in iraq they were static line or were they, they they free fall
1: no, they were static okay. So the, the other one in, in Afghanistan, by this point, was a fairly routine jump. It was, hey, we right. need guys to get out there. I happened to be available and not injured, so they put me on the jump. Um, the, the Iraq one is, is a funny story. So I was out um, with some SEALs doing a, a reconnaissance looking for a POW at the time. Um, I got back. I got off an airplane, and my commander met me at the tail of the airplane. He says, hey, you're jumping tomorrow night. You need to go get sleep. I said, well, I'd probably need you to go plan this mission. He said, no, I'm telling you to go get some sleep because you're jumping in 12 hours. So we got a little bit of sleep, went into the ops center, did some final planning. Um, and we were jumping in H1 airfield in the Western Iraq. Uh, what we were trying to do is open up Western Iraq by bringing in forces yeah. so we come straight across. Um, and that was pretty neat. Again, you know, I... I all of my parachute jumps were with 3rd Ranger Battalion or Regimental Recon Detachment. So I have a tight relationship with that organization, especially back then because we all knew each other. Um, so it's just another operation I went on with him.
0: Because your mission is so unique and different, I mean, you're doing all these jumps, but are you ever actually in regular ground, pat, ground combat throughout your career?
1: Define regular ground combat.
0: Just, you know, I mean... You, you, essentially, if I'm understanding you correctly, like you're jumping into open spaces where nobody is because you have to land a plane. So sure, I mean, I'm sure that there are times that you've gotten engaged by the enemy there, but, you know, are, are you ever in a situation where your sole mission is just ground combat?
1: Well, uh, a lot of times in the early days of the war, it was very specific going after to capture somebody. Right. Um, as the war evolved over time, we had, uh, I can't remember, the village stability operations. So we would put guys in the field and they were there to help do foreign internal defense uh, and by nature of being there. You're now a target. So you're getting in, into combat that way. Um, there's not a whole lot of like a normal infantry unit, you know, you're doing line on line combat. It's usually very surgically uh, planned out missions, um, but a lot of ground combat. Uh, you know, if you look at the six air force crosses, we earned, aside of John Chapman's medal of honor. Those were guys that were close in fights with the enemy. Um, many of them planned, whether they were in the flat desert or in the mountains of of Afghanistan.
0: I mean, I I guess I'm just trying to ascertain from your point of view, you know, is one more difficult or more challenging than the other? I mean, you know, you seem to make all the jumps seem routine and the same. So I don't know if that's that part is harder. But is it harder being engaged in the enemy in ground combat or do you feel more secure? Do you feel like your, your job is easier jumping out of an airplane?
1: No, I I don't think those make it easier or harder. Those are just kind of ways to get to work whether you're in a convoy or you're walking or you're riding motorcycles, whatever those things are. Those are just ways to work. It's once you get there, what do you do? Um, In in some ways, special operations community has it easier because they have assets and they have high levels of training and and everybody is very vested in being there, right? Um, So when you're working with a tier one or a tier two unit, uh, sometimes when you're working with a, a conventional unit, People may not be as motivated or as trained or as capable. So, uh, but what you have there is you have mass numbers and and uh, and a lot of uh, other resources that are brought to bear. Um, so I never really looked at it. Is this mission harder than that mission? I looked at it from the perspective of what do I have to do and how do I buy down risk for myself and the force. Um, you know, the, the last set of missions I went on, I was um, I was re- working in the ops center in Palad Air Base. And we had a British force that was working with our command and and the boss came out and he said, Hey, these guys are out there doing good stuff, but they're not using air appropriately. Um, could you go down there and advise them on what's going on? So I'm an E eight at this point. I'm, I'm not supposed to be out on the front lines with guys. I said, sure, I'll go down. Not, not that I get a choice When the general place. You to do it. You're doing it. So I go pack my stuff and, uh one of the things that we teach combat controllers all the time is you never go anywhere without your radios program. So I'm getting my radios program despite going down for what I think is an administrative job. I get on the ground. I, I meet these guys like, Hey, that's your seat. So what do you mean? They're like, yeah, we're going on a mission in four hours. You're in that seat in the Humvee. And within four hours of getting on the ground with dudes I've never met, I'm now going out and doing missions. Um, and I think the third mission we went on, we were getting shot at as soon as we hit the ground. So I think that kind of fits into your category of, yeah. Holy shit! I'm I'm now in a in a firefight that was unplanned, um, and you know I'm I'm right next to the ground force commander, and we're we letting the battle evolve. And at some point, he says, "Hey man, I want bombs dropped." I said, "Well, you got to pull your guys back uh, because they're too close to the building you want me to kill." Um, yes, you know, so we went through that evolution, and uh, ultimately, we uh, we destroyed that building with all the bad guys in it.
0: When you say we went through that evolution, that seems like it's code for we had a disagreement.
1: No, it wasn't. Oh, okay. It wasn't. It was just, uh, I was explaining to him what had to happen, uh, and that just takes time, right? Like, it, it's not in the movies where somebody just touches their earset and says, hey, everybody, back off. Yeah. There's a lot of people moving, a lot of noise. Do yeah. you mean it doesn't uh, happen Everybody that way? with their own opinion. <laughs> so, yeah. And uh, it took a little while to get people pulled back into a safe distance that I was comfortable with. Um, and, uh, you know, interestingly, on that, I, what I wanted was an AC 130 because it's a very surgical platform, but all I had was F 16. So, I start talking them on. They finally get their eyes on. I actually have them on short final. They're ready to drop. And the AC-130 checks on. I'm like, okay, uh, knock it off, knock it off. The F-16s, I send them up to altitude. They're mad because they really wanted to be able to drop the bombs. Um, AC-130 got talked on, and, and they did a phenomenal job. They very surgically hit that sh- that house with no collateral damage. So uh, we were lucky to have that happen.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. If you're an F- F-16 pilot, you tell them to back off. He's pretty pissed at that point in time. Um...
1: Well, especially since he was nose down, like he was coming in on his run. Oh, really? So yeah, he he was amped up. Uh, but again, that's what a combat controller gets paid to do. We we go, all right. Um, I could drop a five hundred thousand pounder here, or I could put a one hundred five through the front window. Uh, one hundred five house is the right right weapon for that that mission.
0: Did you ever? Was there ever a time where you got into a fight with or, or a disagreement with somebody on the ground who said I needed air, and you know, or your X, Y, and Z couldn't happen? I mean, are those rare occurrences?
1: There was a mission I went on actually two days prior to that mission um, and that we had competing targets and the guy controlling air, who wasn't a combat controller on the other target, he was uh, very, we'll say, selfishly using that asset and I needed it uh, and that turned into a a pissing contest Uh, and that after action is always pretty colorful as well. Who won? Well, he kept the asset, so fortunately, I never actually needed to drop bombs. Gotcha. Okay. Um, but in the after action, you know, the ground force commander went, "Yeah, we're not doing that again." When this guy asked eh, you for the airplane, you sent it over to him because uh, we needed him to do reconnaissance on both uh, targets. This guy thought he saw something, so I pushed the aircraft to him. Uh, he just then didn't want to give him back, um, and that, that's that's a human thing. Like it's you, you have it, it's comfort for you, uh, so you, you just try to keep it. But he, he was making a bad decision. I didn't.
0: I mean, was there ever a time where you couldn't get air quick enough or you couldn't get assets quick enough that you can remember?
1: I did. Not for me. Um, A lot of guys who work for me had those problems. Um, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, people die because of that happening. But it it never happened for me. But it it is common to be in a firefight and go, hey, I need this. And somebody who's got a bigger picture says, no, we're moving this asset over here. Um, One of the things that we we try to do is spend – as you're doing a train-up to go overseas, um, the ground force wants you with them all the time. And we would say, no, we're not doing that. We're going we're gonna to send our guys out to um, Vegas to do training with the, the pilots because the pilots start getting invested interest. And when they go, hey, I know that's Michael Monaco on the ground, they will help influence those decisions. Oh, wow. Um, but to your question, absolutely. Uh, numerous stories of our guys being on the ground needing something and not getting what they needed.
0: I mean, that's got to be... There's a sense that you're like, you know, the angel on their shoulder, right? You're, you're the, you're the one savior that they can get the leverage in the, in the initiative back in, in combat.
1: That's right. Uh, you can go back to Roberts Bridge where, where that happened multiple times, where people on the ground were asking for stuff that somebody chose not to send, uh, and people died because it, you can go back to Mogadishu as well. Uh, if we'd had AC-130s over Mogadishu, a lot of that stuff wouldn't have happened because those combat controllers could have been very surgically taking out keynotes, but um, you know, again, national leadership at that time chose not to do that. Um and why do, that's why do in you suppose situation.
0: that program. Like, wh- wh- I mean and and again, we've had twenty years of combat, right? So we, we I think we understand it a little bit better. Mogadishu I certainly understood um, at the time because we're just, you know, we hadn't really fought I mean, we didn't need it as much, at least publicly, right? The perception is we didn't need it in in the, in the Gulf War, because we just overran them with tanks and, you know, it wasn't even breaking a sweat and we hadn't had anything since Vietnam, but why just spitball an opinion or, or an idea. Why, why would DOD or, or Washington be so reluctant to support with air power to any given mission?
1: Well, it's politics. A lot of it is, you know, how does it look when it hits the news? Um, and there's also experience. I, when you look at our political uh, landscape right now, post-World War II, I want to say, 70 or 80% of those people had military experience right now it's less than 1%. So they don't truly understand what they're doing. Right. Um, is that their fault or not? I, I don't know the answer to that, but there's a lot of politics and even with uh, general officers, um, you know, there, there was a uh, I can't recall his name right now, but there's a general officer who, uh, was an air force officer back during, uh, you know, the battle of Takhargar, um, that didn't make some decisions. And a lot of people questioned, was he, Prepared to to be in that environment, um, and, and there are a fair amount of people that say no. That's why you need a ground force commander running that, not not an air force officer who doesn't really understand what's happening on top of that mountain. Um, I never dug dug into it that much, but uh, there's a lot of lot of opinions out there about that.
0: How hard is it to grasp? Um, I, I guess the, the the gap between what is going on on the ground um, and you know, like, cause you see it, like you're on the ground with combat. And so you get a better view than people sitting back in an operation center or even people sitting back in a, you know, rear support area, whatever it is who may make the, make these decisions. Um it, it, Are there conversations you would have ahead of time with certain leaders and certain people to, to let them understand that, you know, or gain their trust and say, look, when I call for this, I need it, you know, and they trusted you enough to trust your judgment.
1: Yeah, I, I, I the specific conversations didn't have to happen. Right. Uh, most of our, our leaders, I would tell you, understood I can't run the battle from the operations center. They did a really good job of observing and making sure that the people on the ground were supported. But there were key times throughout my career where I watched the opposite happen, where somebody goes, I know better. I used to do that. Uh, why didn't you guys turn left when you went to that room instead of turning right? Why didn't you go to this building first? A lot of second guessing. Um, but but that that was unique to certain personalities. I think most of our, our officer corps in the joint community did a pretty good job of, of going, Hey, these guys are on the ground. I have direct line of communication and let me take in information and let me try to help them where I can help them.
0: Um, 24 years. Uh, is there any particular moment that stands out to you over others? Um, whether it's, you know, calling for fire, there was the halo jump, whatever it may be. I mean, is there like sort of a, a personal ranking of, of moments that stand out for you as the
1: best? Well, we, we talked about many of them, right? So when I'm mm-hmm. sitting in a classroom and an instructor looks around and goes, Five of you are going to make it, La Monica. you're not one. That one stands out. As a matter of fact, most of the guys that are in the room that I still know today, we recall that every time we get together. Um, graduating for me was a big deal. Uh, going to war the first time uh, was big. 9 11 was clearly a, a, a big moment in everybody's lives. Um, October 19th, 2001, jumping into Afghanistan was big. The, the free fall jump was big. Um, the, the time I went out with the Brits, that was another big one, right? Because, uh, I didn't know those guys four hours earlier. We'd never met before, you know, it, I'm in a uh, on missions with them. Um, as I look back at my career, the, the biggest thing about the career is the people. It's, uh, you spend an entire career around some pretty awesome people and, um, you go through some very unique experiences and, and they make you better. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of things that that, that I look back on my career and uh, the greatness that I drew from it. Uh, and it's all those things we've talked about today.
0: Um, when you decided to retire, what was the, the reason? Were you just done or the, the Air Force said, see you later? How did, how did it all come to pass?
1: Uh, it was a pretty simple decision. My oldest daughter has cerebral palsy and we knew she needed a big surgery. And uh, one night I came home, my wife, my wife is a physician's assistant, so she understands the medical really well. She said, hey, we're not going to get her the care she needs by moving every two years. So it's time. I went to my boss the next day and say, Hey, I'm retiring. Uh, they all did what they're supposed to do, which is try to talk me out of it. I said, unless you're going to take care of my daughter for me, that's not going to happen. So, uh, pretty simple. We moved to Colorado, best doctor on the planet, did the surgery for her and took care of her. Um, it's, I would have liked to have done 30 years because I love what I did. I, I felt for, for the 24 that I was in, I was doing the job that I was built to do. Um, Could I have gone and been a SEAL? Sure. Could I have been an SF guy? Sure. I was made to be a combat controller. It it fulfilled everything I needed in my life, and and I loved it. Uh, One of the unique things about my job and my personal experiences, in the opening days of Afghanistan and Iraq, I was every other night jumping back and forth between working with the Army and the Navy. So I wasn't attached to one team. There were so few of us that when those guys would go out and they needed one of us, For us, it was just a rotation. Hey, you just came off this mission, you're going on this one tomorrow. So I was just going back and forth between that. Uh, And and that's pretty rewarding when you go out there and you're working with the nation's best, all the people in in special operations, and you're dealing with the challenges of working with different folks every night. It's just a really cool part of our job.
0: Do we need more combat controllers?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, we, We had barely enough to get us through the 20 years we had. When you think of... Aligning forces with all the different theaters around the world, there's not enough of them. There just there not
0: is it, is it a recruiting issue? Is it actually a skill set issue? I mean,
1: well, it's the Air Force. So the Air Force limits the numbers you can have. So let me put this in perspective. Combat control has been around since 1953, before all the other uh, special operations forces. Combat control has been a thing since 1953. Across all time, as of July of this year, there are Thirty-seven hundred combat controllers across all time. Today, there's probably four or five thousand SEALs active duty. There's probably seven or eight thousand special forces active duty. We have thirty-seven hundred all time. Um, the Air Force needs more of them. The Joint Community needs more of them. Um, but it's it's a matter of do you have enough positions to to right. fill people into. Most of my career, we were about seventy percent manned. As I was retiring, we got up into the nineties, and we've increased our manpower. Um, so, if you have the billets, you can recruit to them and train to them.
0: Are you okay with the way special operations now has a light shone on it the way it never did before in the pre nine eleven world?
1: Um, I think some people put themselves out there too much, um, and, and in doing so, they they pass on things they probably shouldn't. Um, but that that community has done a lot in the past twenty years. They did a whole ton before that. Um, I'm not so concerned about people understanding what they do and the impact they have. Um, my bigger concern is the, uh, the toll that it has taken on, on that force. Like there are guys who I put through combat control school. They graduated a month after, you know, October 19th, when I jumped in and all they've known is fighting a war. And those guys are still in, they've been fighting a war since for the past 20 years. Uh, that takes a toll on the individuals and culturally it takes a toll on the force. Um, As we're starting to wind down the wars, the things that Combat Control Association and Foundation are focused on is working with the active duty saying, hey, what are you guys seeing? How are you taking care of it? Uh, What can't you take care of? So where do we come in? Um, And and for us, it's really about the rapid response. We get a call probably once, two or three, every two or three months that says, hey, Joey's having a hard time, either domestic issues or substance abuse issues of some sort um, or PTSD and we come in and we go. Okay, what can we do? Because the VA can't turn fast enough, we'll put money up front immediately and get that person to where they need to be uh, to help them work through what they're dealing with.
0: Um, you mentioned the Combat Control Association, Combat Controller Foundation. How did it come to pass that you ended up as the president or as the president of the board of both those organizations?
1: Well, the the association has been around for decades, late seventies, um, and I got elected to the board. And once I was on the board. Uh, the board members asked me to be president and, and as uh, quite an honor uh, given the people that are in my community. Um, the foundation really got created right around the same time because an association, the way it raises money is it reaches out to members and says, Hey, Joey got hurt. We need to take care of Joey. And it's very much this uh, uh, internal way of raising funds. And we said, no, we got to do better than this. We can't just be taking care of guys reactionary. So uh, we stood up the foundation as our fundraising arm uh, and just this year, we really started getting traction as far as ho- hosting fundraisers and uh, making real money that allows us to now look at guys and go, hey, here's what we're going to do for the squadrons that are active duty. Here's what we're going to do for guys who are injured. Here's what we're going to do for wives and children who need help. Uh, so we're, we're we're just now pivoting uh, and taking full advantage of uh, what the foundation can bring to bear.
0: Is there a um, part of the schooling that you went through initially that you didn't feel like you'd get to do enough of? I mean, did you do a lot of diving? Did you have a chance to do that throughout your career?
1: We we did a ton of it in training. Um, real world missions typically was recovery diving. So our squadrons are built with pararescue, and, and their job is to to rescue people. So on those, we would, we would dive either try to recover bodies or recover something that was lost. Um, to my knowledge, no combat controllers ever done a true combat dive. Okay. Very few SEALs have done true combat dives. Um, that I think we're when you look at the underwater aspect of the job seals doing strategic reconnaissance, using, uh, uh, you know, mini subs that, that's really where it's at. That's, that's where you get your bigger bang for the buck.
0: Yeah. I mean, does it, in retrospect, does it seem like almost a, I don't want to say wasted skill, but because they do it better, you're only supplementary to them, right? Like that, that's kind of the only role it has. Yeah.
1: yeah it's, Uh, It's just an insertion method. So like I said earlier, like those are just ways to get to work. Um, And when you work with the SEALs, you have to be qualified to deploy whatever way they're doing. Um, And um, they can't do what we do. Um, So it it really just comes down to, you know, are you prepared to go execute the mission? And that's what special operations forces are all about.
0: What's the part you miss the most about it?
1: People, Um, people in the mission. Um, And while the mission was awesome, I don't miss living in hangars or tents all the way around the world in dusty areas. Um, but the, the people they just, uh, across all the services, one of the things that people will ask me all the time, who's better, who's the best. There is no better or best. There are a lot of good humans who go through very difficult schools to be really good at what they do. And they spend a career doing it. Um, I've got great friends across the entire soft community that I continue to uh, hang out with today or communicate with today. Um, being around them, just re you.
0: Is there anything that you would change either about the training pipeline or um, what they do now versus what they did when you came in?
1: No, the, the pipeline is better now. Um, it, it's actually really impressive that the things that they pay attention to, they recruit guys uh, very specifically, which they didn't do. They now have people who their job is to take recruits and work with them to the point where they go, okay, this guy is ready to ship for basic training. While they're in basic training, they have their own unique uh, basic training flights where it's all combat controllers, power rescuing, and um, and TACPs. So they're all going to basic training together and they're getting special food and and physical training aspects there. Uh, Then when they get to the training pipeline, all these things that they're measuring, whether heart rate, temperature, uh, VO2 max, all these things, they're really able to baseline what good operators look like and pay attention to them and follow them physically throughout their career. The training pipeline, while the order has changed a little bit, is largely the same as when I went through. Uh, they they do a lot better job preparing them, but the actual qualification course is, is the same course.
0: Gotcha. Um,
1: so so- there's not much I would change. It's, I think it's a, a tried and true.
0: No, uh, and again, I only ask just because a lot of the other special ops communities, um, whether it's Green Greenbrae's or or SEALs or whatever, um, even to a certain extent Rangers, you know, there's been a slight change, at least in the mentality with which they approach the training um, and the assessment and selection of these individuals. But some of that has been based off of the fact that through 20 years of combat, we needed more Green Berets, We needed more SEALs because we asked them to do more than we ever have before. And so there was a little bit of, you know, streamlining in the process, if you will, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I I think it's all bullshit. Like It's always harder when I went through, right? Yeah. Um, (laughs) I'll tell you what the guys go through now is harder than what I went through. I I actually, I visited the site last year and I looked around and went, I might not have made it to this course. Just the way they're measuring things and and all the things that are expected of them. Um, And and I think that's across the board. I think a lot of guys get really tied to, my class was tough and, you know, you wouldn't have made it to my class and, okay, whatever. Um, I, I don't think any one pipeline's harder than the other. I don't think uh, the guys that went through after me had an easier time than I did. Um, We produce a lot of really good humans um, in our specific career fields and they, they do great stuff and I'm proud of them. And America's lucky to have them.
0: Did you, any of your other fellow uh, combat controllers end up uh, being killed in action or anything like that? Being who? End up being killed in action or anything like that
1: or wounded? Oh yeah. I've, I've got 19 teammates who, who died in in action? Um, wow. And you know, our job is to celebrate their lives um, and take care of their families.
0: I mean, maybe it's because you make it seem so effortless. And I, I, again, obviously, you know, John Chapman. It's a he was stuck on the side of a mountain. It's different. You know, there was enemy there. Yeah. Like, generally, you're not alone, outnumbered on the side of a mountain. And with you, well, you might be outnumbered. But um, you know, the way you describe it makes it seem like those situations aren't that prevalent. Um, is that sort of generally? These guys ended up in, in spots where they somehow normally weren't supposed to be
1: no it's it, it's it's very prevalent I just i don't have those same experiences gotcha. I happen to be okay. lucky although I got to go to combat frequently um there are some guys who spent an entire career under the gun um you know I, I was just down in a, a event out in Texas and I was with uh, Ish Agus. uh he's a senior master sergeant now It's earned two silver stars that doesn't happen because um, he was in an easy environment. Um, right. Rob Gutierrez, who by all uh, by all accounts should be a Medal of Honor recipient, the guys that were on the ground will tell you he did Medal of Honor stuff while he was out there. Um, I, I spent time with Rob, Rob all the time, and Rob's been in two events. He should have gotten an Air Force Cross for his first one uh, four years prior. Um, the, the guys were out there, jobbing it. They were in very different, difficult situations. Um, you know, I, I, I try not to focus overly on those because. Um, while our guys are out doing great things, it's really, what do we do to bring, wh- how do we impact the fight? And that's kind of what I wanted to get across today.
0: No, I think, I mean, again, I, I, I'm smarter now than I was when we started this podcast, put it that way. Uh, it, it's, it's, so, just... you know, go ahead.
1: Yeah. You know, say so you, you ask about the pipeline. Um, I told you my last day at combat control school was nine 11, right? <laughs> the next 60 days while I was deployed looked a lot like the field tra- training exercise at combat control school. It was really cool. So I was out there and as we were preparing for missions, I was like, Oh, this is what I put the students through three weeks ago. This is what I had to do with the students a uh, month ago. So the training is extremely relevant. Um, in my opinion, it's, uh, it's born out of combat. Um, and it is constantly revised, but the core of the mission stays the same. And, um, it actually made it easier for me when we were planning in Afghanistan, because I'd never been there before. Right. So I'm, I'm trying to associate the things we're doing. Um, and I was just easily, very easily translating it to the field training exercises. The students go through at the combat control school.
0: I mean, I, I would tend to think generally in special operations, that the gap between training and realities is much smaller. At least I could tell you about the conventional army from, you know, when I was there, I, I can tell you for sure the things that we trained up on pre-mobilization and when we got on ground, it's like, yeah, that was a waste of time. Uh, we're, we're not going to use any of that here. Yeah. Um, but I would assume in the special operations community the gap is much smaller.
1: Yeah, I feel like it was. Yeah.
0: So, um, you know, with all this, uh, any regrets on 24 years or anything you'd want to do differently, do over again?
1: Oh, there's probably some personal things where I got in trouble it. I, <laughs> I might want to do over. Uh, but overall, no. It's I. I tell people all the time if my body can handle it, I'd do it tomorrow.
0: Like you got in trouble? Like how? Just out of curiosity, you don't have to get into specifics. Well,
1: is this like there may know, have been some alcohol involved? I was going to say all I daily may have been blown out of a country for, yeah. It's, God, well, it was stupid, uh, stupid young guy stuff.
0: That's okay. We're, we're all guilty. Most of us, you know, every, yeah, everybody needs right. advice, Mike. Everybody needs advice. You know, yeah. if, if you don't have one,
1: well, and, and the, the fortunate thing for me is none of it's a secret. I got caught every time, so it's all it's all well documented. But it, <laughs> as you look back on a career go could you go undo some things? Yeah, of course we have all made mistakes, but, uh, I'd go back and do my career all over again. And I'd advise anybody to go do it. I'd, I, I love being a combat controller. I think with, uh, what that community does is very unique and, um, it's physically, intellectually, emotionally stimulating. So, uh, it's great, great job to be in.
0: I meant to ask you, uh, because you got out in 2011, a couple of months after we finally got bin Laden, um, what is a combat controller's role in that sort of mission there?
1: Yeah, so uh, interestingly, the day I retired is the day they got Bin Laden. Oh, boy, you keep starting and stopping
0: so, on these significant days.
1: It's uh, my, uh, one of my teammates who was uh, in the unit where we sent guys to go do that called me. He said, we got him. I was like, what do you mean we need him. Said, we got him. He said, we got him. Turn on the news. And I turned on the news and that sure as shit. Uh, that That's was like awesome. 11 o'clock at night. Next morning is when I retired. Uh, so it was a great way to retire. Um, so in, in that event, um, you could have a combat controller on that airplane. They didn't. Uh, the SEALs chose not to. And it was really just, you know, get more assaulters on the ground. Right. Um, but you, you then have an uh, an, off, an offset site with a QRF. Uh, and there we had uh, combat controllers, power rescue uh, ready to go. Not only that, but they were running that airfield like, uh, you don't just land planes wherever you want to. So, you know, they went in, they set that up, landed airplanes, and, and everything launched from there. And the QRF was ready to respond. So, in that scenario, you could have had a combat control on, on one of the helicopters. You just didn't on this one. Wow,
0: amazing stuff. Well, again, 24 years, uh, clearly uh, of, of a high speed, low drag. All the phrases that we use, you know, just incredible uh, amounts of. Your whole career seems kinetic; it, like it never stopped.
1: Yeah, it was it was quite the ride, um, and you know. Uh, so, while well, it was a fun ride for me, it, it clearly puts pressures on your family. And uh, my wife, she's a champ. She dealt with it. You know, she took it all in stride. She met me uh, when we were in Germany, or we met each other when we were in Germany. Mm-hmm. So she knew what she was in for. Um, <laughs> did you did you have to like not
0: tell her where you were going and what you were doing?
1: Um, th- there were times that when we met, uh, like when I took off for Somalia and Angola. And those were rapid deployments and it was like, hey, I'm leaving. We were dating at the time. Um we uh after the first two years we were then engaged to be married and she went off to PA school and I went off to uh the JSON company we were preparing for Haiti and like all she knew is she couldn't get a hold of me. Uh so yeah that that puts extra stresses on the marriage.
0: How is your is your your son with cerebral palsy?
1: Your daughter? My daughter, yes. yeah. Yeah she doing? She will great. So she uh if she had the two surgeries that she needed really complex surgeries, uh, but they did what they're supposed to do and she's mobile still today. Uh she just graduated high school in June, she turned eighteen in July and she has run runs her own business um where she sells stuff on Shopify, which is kinda like an Etsy. Yep. Um so she makes stuff and sells it. She says she's not ready to go to college because they're doing that remote and she doesn't want that experience. So she figured she'd start her own business. So it was really cool. It's, it's fun a- watching a- her to grow up.
0: No, that's 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 incredible. So again, uh, just an incredible ride. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Um, I kind of feel energized, you know, like, again, I just, uh, I knew what what combat controllers were and sort of the scope of their job, but hearing you talk about it is, it's amazing. Um, again, as you said, there's not many of you running around. Uh, so I'm glad you could be the first one we could get here, uh, on the hazard ground, but, uh, incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing it with us.
1: Yeah, no, we need to connect you with Alan Yoshida and Calvin Markham and Dan Schilling and and You get some other folks on here talking to you. Uh, Their stories are are quite incredible.
0: It it is amazing, and we'd we'd love to tell them. So we certainly appreciate your time. Again, uh, Michael and Monica, thank you so much for being part of the Hazard
1: Ground. Thanks for having us. You've been listening to Kill
0: Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.